Welcome to 2LO Rebooted, where we tell the stories of BBC design and engineering. I'm Bill Thompson. Last week in the Radio Theatre, we launched a new five-year research partnership between BBC Research and Development and eight UK universities. It's called the Data Science Research Partnership. With so much attention being paid to machine learning and big data, the partnership is a key part of the work to create a more personal BBC one that can inform, educate and entertain in new ways. As well as the BBC, it includes world-leading UK data scientists from the universities of Bristol, Manchester, Edinburgh and Surrey, Imperial College London, Queen Mary University of London, Ulster University and University College London. And it will also work with media and technology organisations from across the UK, elsewhere in Europe and internationally. The event began with talks from Matthew Postgate and R&D controller Andy Conroy and finished with some lightning talks from BBC staff and some of our potential partners. In this special edition of 2LO Rebooted, we bring you the highlights and you can also watch video of the whole event on the R&D website. I was there to act as MC, so we'll begin with my introduction and then hear from Matthew. But first, some cheesy music just to get the audience in the mood. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Bill Thompson, and I'm your host for this morning. And I'd like to begin by welcoming you all to the BBC Radio Theatre. This is the official launch event for the Data Science Research Partnership, which brings together a remarkable collection of organisations to focus on one of the big scientific and societal challenges that faces us today. How we deal with the unprecedented capacity to collect, store, analyse and use data. Data about everything and potentially data about everyone. Data that we want to understand, data we want to use wisely in ways that improve the world, that benefit us all. And all nine of the partner organisations, the BBC and the eight universities represented here today, share these common goals and we all have a lot to learn from working together. So we're going to move on straight away to our first speaker, Matthew Postgate. Matthew, please come to the stage. So listen, uh, I want to also add my welcome to, to the BBC. It's absolutely fantastic to see so many uh, people here and also to welcome you, as Bill says, to the launch of the Data Science Research Partnership. It's one of the most important events I think I'm going to do this year. And it's great to see so many partners, collaborators and colleagues and friends of the BBC uh, here today. As Chief Technology and Product Officer, I lead a division that brings together all of the technical expertise in broadcasting, digital products and technology tools from across the BBC. Design and Engineering is a division that connects the BBC to our audiences through broadcast and online and delivers the suite of products and services that the BBC uses internally and externally. And it's a division that our Director General Tony Hall has asked to lead the work to transform the BBC for the next generation of audiences. And so in that sense, the DSRP could not be more timely because that new generation that we need to reach are people who will grow up assuming that they can get instant access to any information or entertainment wherever they want, but perhaps even more importantly, expect those services to learn their interests, obsessions, dislikes, and tailor themselves to fit to those individuals. 
and those audiences are going to be as much creators as consumers of words, sound, vision and more, which is a huge change for the role that the BBC will play in their lives. In order to serve them, we need to innovate, but we need to ensure that we shape that innovation in the interests of society. Yesterday was the BBC's 95th birthday, um, when it was founded in 1922 on the 18th of October as the British Broadcasting Company by the leading technologists of the time. Back then, those pioneers, including the BBC's very first engineer, Lord Reith, recognised the power of the new technology of broadcasting. Following an initial period of growth, they began to believe that few, a few fundamental ideas needed to be preserved in this emerging marketplace. And actually, in some ways, you can see a corollary in the, the period that we've gone through with the rise of the internet, the rise of data, and now the beginning to see realisations within society that there needs to be some quite careful thought about how we set up these technologies as the foundation for the new society that we're building. Some of the tenets that those original pioneers carried forward were things such as that information should be trustworthy, that audiences' interests should be represented, that programmes should not just amuse people but also enrich their lives. These are the values they embedded by making public service a central part of the new market, transforming the BBC from that company to a corporation with a mission to inform, educate and entertain. Since then, we've always been able to match that mission to changing times and changing technologies, and we're confident that we will continue to do so in future as we work to make the BBC relevant, make it interesting and make it a vital part of people's lives going forward. But we won't do any of that unless we understand the messages that are buried in the data that we now collect from our disparate audiences or that could be extracted from new sources. And that's why this partnership is so important to us. In some ways, we've been doing data science for much of our 95-year history. We called it audience research, and it remains a vital tool for scheduling, product design, and budgeting. We have been gathering transactional data for years too. We call them overnights. Fortunately, it's only a one-way data source. And our ma mathematical modeling is genuinely, truly exceptional, but only where we use it for scheduling our television and radio channels. The game has changed, not least because of the work done by many of you, uh, and we know that the BBC needs to do more if we are going to meet the, the uh, needs of tomorrow's audiences. And that's why we've introduced sign-in to BBC iPlayer this summer, so that we can begin to gather the data that we'll need to serve audiences better, and why we're investing in our audience platform to make the insights from that data available across the BBC. The partnership we launched today began about 18 months ago, when I was discussing the critical importance of data science for the BBC with Sam Chadwick and George Wright. We began by discussing what the new data paradigm might mean for our learning mission. I told Sam I wanted the BBC to enable our audiences to be the best digital learners in the world, a key public purpose for us. I wanted us to challenge ourselves. Can we make individuals' lifelong learning histories transportable? I wanted us to do something that would have a measurable positive impact on society, a subject close to Andy's Conroy's heart in, in, in R&D. We think that the data research partnership will help us do four main things. Build our own capability in doing, and in doing so, help the BBC become part of a vibrant ecosystem in the UK, supporting industry and fostering a positive transition to the information age for society. It can also allow us to use our own big problems as the basis for research that we would hope has a wider applicability, both in the commercial sector and in other parts of, of the public sector. In some ways, the problems are the key raw material in a lot of this this activity and that some of the other inputs are the ones that we sometimes focus on. Believe me, the BBC's got plenty of problems to, to, to solve. 
We also want to ensure that our staff have the skills they need to use the tools available. And then finally, and crucially, we want to make a real difference to the BBC, how we work, how we engage, how we collaborate, and how we change for the future. Crucially, we want, to, want the BBC to adopt the use of data in a way that is true to the BBC's ethos. And we'll do it in a way that retains the trust that people have placed on us over the decades. We are trusted because we put our audiences first, and we'll always be open about the data we capture, the things we do of it, and the difference it makes to each individual as they use BBC services or watch and listen to our output. We also seek to serve everyone, not just those with the latest devices or the highest digital skills or access. Hopefully that this is a perspective that will be a valuable ingredient in what our partnership can achieve. It's an honour to be sharing the start of something so exciting with all of you. I'm keenly awaiting the outcome of our share endeavour, and I'm sure you are too. So all it remains for me to say is thank you very much, and let's go. Matthew Postgate there, and he was followed by Andy Conroy, who really seemed to relish the occasion. Have you looked up? They call it a radio theatre, but it's not. It's a studio, actually. It's a real studio, and it's been one of those since 1932. It's used an awful lot, many times a week. The place where you were gathering for coffee earlier, if you go there on a typical day, you will find a huddle of mums and dads, grandmas and granddads. And if you're feeling a particularly brave BBC employee, you'll sit yourself in the middle and you'll say to them, I work here. And at that moment, you become a world expert at each and every aspect of the BBC, <laughs> particularly the bits they don't like. But there is something glorious about seeing them snake all the way through here and watch live programmes. Behind that screen, I'm not allowed to tell you this, and you're not allowed to come on stage, but behind there is the sort of Radio 4 quiz panel kit that they're putting in place for the Now Show, which has been recorded here, I think it's on Friday and a couple of weeks' time. Also coming up in here, we've got Deep Purple, Glad most of you know that. Uh, now Rogers, also performing here as well. This is a real live performance space. And there is something quite magical about the live performance. And if you can hear a sort of yearning in my voice, it's because I am a radio producer. I started in radio production. But then I skipped 20 years ago to the internet because I realized at that moment in time, the boys and girls on the internet had better stories. But when I got there, I realised, actually, it wasn't the stories that mattered. It was actually the men and women who were making the machine that made the stories. So I skipped to engineering management. But when I got there, I realised, actually, as good as this machine is, and as good as this factory is, you want to see the one that's coming later. So I skipped to R&D. And that's why I'm here, because I think the best stories are yet to come. And I, I kind of need to keep on saying this so that everybody's really clear about this. R&D is all about what comes later. What comes later. In about 26 minutes' time, you might feel the pips. It's a thing in this building. And as they're reached, hundreds of people in this building will snap to. They'll follow a red light, which signifies a live studio. That is the rhythm of this building but it's not the rhythm of R&D. Nor is the rhythm of R&D really to be sweating that much what we're going to be doing next year. We're much more interested on what that later time could offer. Our job at a really basic level is to take this technology from wherever it comes and then imagine how we're going to make and keep the BBC relevant, useful to all of us in three or five or seven years' time. 
So it's a very clear role that we've got to do. And we understand the consequences of that, by the way, which are non-trivial. We're going to have to change a bunch of things. We're going to have to change the way we actually tell stories. And we can probably change the stories we're going to tell. And in doing that, and if the bloke who built this building the last 10 years is listening, he should shut his ears at the moment, we're going to have to retool the whole of this factory. The whole of it. This is a vast Renaissance-style storytelling factory, and it's going to have to be reinvented. And that's why I wanted to have this research partnership, because we cannot do this on our own. It is literally beyond us. In truth, this department has never done it on its own. It's 80-odd years old. It's got a ton of relationships around the world about all sorts of technologies. But recent experience of the one that Matthew mentioned, the audio research partnership, shows just how vital this can be. There are over a dozen floors in this building, many of them underground. And in the new part of it, there are studios on every single floor. It is chock full of studios. It's deliberate. It was a design principle. We wanted everybody, rigger, makeup, director, accountant, doorman, we wanted everybody to understand the unit of our output, the unit of our work, is the story. That's what this building represents. But there's one studio complex which I think, and I am biased, is way more important than any other. It's about three floors that way. There's one corridor, and then there's three separate studios. The first studio looks like something out of NASA, because that's what your broadcast studio looks like now. It's used by Radio 1 for daytime output. It is beautiful if you're built like I am. The next studio, a little bit uglier, more interesting, basically has the same capability of that one, but only uses software and hardware you can get on the commercial market now. Same stuff, different tooling. But it's the third studio that's really interesting. It's just next to it, even uglier, it's the R&D studio, or more accurately, the studio built by the Audio Research Partnership. It's had its own world's first three weeks ago. It's actually one of them being demoed in the cafe, The Mermaid's Tears. And the reason I mention it is because we went all the way from quite pure research with our partnership all the way to bricks and mortar inside four years. This is real. We're making output. And not just there. Why not build a brand new building in Cardiff? She said in her Welsh accent. So we are. The brand new Cardiff headquarters has got at its very heart some of the output of that research partnership. So this is really real. So when I look at this handsome lot, I'm sitting there and thinking, OK, when are we going to get on that product backlog? When are we going to get stuff live? Because that is not an unreasonable expectation. We basically want to get our stuff in front of the 370 million people who use the BBC every week around the world. Now, what can we do to help this along the way? What do we bring into the market? Well, we can bring some of the talent. That's spelled with a capital T, and I'm not part of it. The talent that I'm talking about are people like David Attenborough, Idris Elba, countless programmes. There's a fabulous format we're playing with at the moment around the moral maze, which you can have a look at. We've got loads of journalists. We've got half a dozen orchestras, which we work with. We, these are real practitioners at the very best of their craft that we can bring to bear and play with. And we can also engage with the community Matthew talked about, 2,500 design and engineering colleagues, some of whom you're going to hear here. All that is real firepower. So for me, when I look at this, I'm sort of thinking, I want to know on what day, when I'm looking at 
you know, the 10 o'clock news on BBC One or wandering along listening to the My App, My Sport app, at what point we're going to start influencing those stories because that is what this is about. Now, R&D at the moment, we're on a bit of a run. We've got a few good things going on. He says, false modestly, rather British-like. Um, 4K HDR, we've got fantastic spatial audio work, voice interaction, which you just have to hear the stuff we're doing there. All that is in play as well. But it's not enough. It really isn't enough. So somehow or another, we have got to supercharge our storytelling. And there's a ton of things we talked about. Improve our understanding of the audience needs. Improve the way we make stories. Improve how we deliver them. And then a really big deal for me, improve our understanding of the user's appreciation. And we've got to somehow or another get that out to this partnership. And I will repeat one thing Matthew said there, which is we are doing this for that public good. We are not building sort of weapons of math destruction. Okay? So let me end with a date in your diary. As you, Matthew said, it's our 95th birthday yesterday. 95 years old. Looking pretty good, eh? Part of the reason we didn't make such a song and dance about it is actually the planning started for the mother of all big bashes, which is our centenary in 2022. A hundred years. And we think by then there is a, a different, better BBC that we can make. Still based on stories, but new stories and new ways. So in my mind, I sort of fast forward and I imagine, this is naff, but I imagine this damn big cake with a hundred candles on. And it'll be Lord or Lady somebody who's in charge at that time. And when he or she turns around and conjures with what we've got, in my hope, what I want to get to is the fact that the thing we're starting here today has in some way created a key part of what that different BBC is. If we've done that, then we've succeeded. If we've not, then the bloke you've just heard speaking will have kicked my ass from here all the way back to Lancashire. I hope you have a fantastic day. I'm looking so forward to getting stuck in with you. Thank you very much. I'll see you for the centenary. <laughs> well, that's Andy Conroy outlining R&D's ambitions for the Data Science Research Partnership. Now let's hear from the people at the sharp end. Colleagues who want to deploy the research to help us deliver our promise to audiences. We began with David Teague from Audiences. So the, the three-minute lightning talk is a bit of a challenge. Uh, normally I ramble on for hours. Um, but in terms of data science and the BBC and this partnership and what we're trying to do, it's important to remember that we have a huge opportunity and we have to be as ambitious as the opportunity that uh, is afforded to us. And that includes you know, editorial and UX and D and products and, how it, and media and marketing and everything. One of the things that we're thinking about at the moment is how can we do something for all of these people before you know, we start doing something for one of them and everyone else is going, well, I, I'm not really involved in that. It doesn't affect my job. What's the fuss about? Another one is a, a little bit of a mathematical question for everyone in the room, which is if you have eight lightning talks, what's the probability that two people are going to talk about the same thing? Um, which I call the big blue fallacy, because I'm not as classically educated as Greg, which is stop trying to build things to replace people, build things that help people do things. And that way, with particularly in the uh, creative and the editorial part of the, the BBC, we're going to get much better engagement in there. And so that's a big principle of some of the work that we're doing. Think about how we can use data to explore old questions that help us with future problems. And so a plug for Caroline and the University of Manchester. Uh, one of the things that we're really interested in and the first research project that we're sponsoring out of my team is looking at online engagement and content engagement and what 
uh, data science and the data that we're collecting can help us understand that around that. And then in terms of that, that content engagement leads to the con engagement with the BBC, which leads to loyalty and leads to uh, the future of the organization. Um, and finally, in terms of a culture, what we should be trying to achieve is not just clever use of data, but the mass adoption of data across the business. It's not just about having a load of people doing some really intelligent things, but it's about making sure that everybody has access to that, to the insights and the tools that are coming out of that, so we're driving a data uh, culture. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you, David. Next up was Kai N. Ong from UXD. So I wouldn't describe myself as a data scientist, but who knows, in five years, maybe I could be. So my name is Kai Ong, and I'm one of the heads of user experience and design. And we are in the user experience and design team, which is part of Matthew's division. So why am I here? Well, I'm here because I want to talk about my team who, you know, we might not be, be, be data scientists, but what we do is we understand people. And we understand people and we design services and products for them, which we hope they quite like. So we are a team of user experience uh, designers, architects, copywriters. We have researchers, uh, accessibility, and neurodiversity specialists. And we've been doing little bits of projects um, that I thought I'd just give you a bit of a flavor about. So one of the things that is obviously a big topic for today is collaboration and partnership. Uh, so we have done little bits of toe in the water, kind of understanding and working with Gabrielle. I won't, I won't give it all away. <laughs> and some of our roster agencies, uh, we've started to understand things like how can decision making change with different information. So we've worked with researchers. So I've got researchers in my team who have been talking to commissioners and planners to try and understand what decisions get made and how different information might influence those decisions differently. The thing I was going to say is, as well as working for the audience-facing products and services, the team also look at um, the tools and systems that content creators and editorial folk in the BBC use. So that's actually really interesting. So as part of that, we have this vast kind of understanding of the challenges of enriching the content graph. <laughs> These are new words I'm learning about. Um, and we've also done a little bit of work on that to understand how that could be made easier, simpler across the BBC. And there's one more thing that I'd like to, to mention. There's um, a project that we've been working on with someone who I think is in the crowd. We call it Data Expedition. And we're looking at how things that might be beyond program content could actually work. So that's actually raised some really interesting questions about the, the ethics and the morality of collecting data, using it, and all of those things that I think have been touched on today. So I don't have much to say other than do get in touch. Here are my details. Um, this is all about kind of getting together and doing work together. So I would like to can send me your scientists. That's <laughs> the message. Thank you very much. Thank you. Kai was followed by Janili Dumbleton from Audience Platform. I wanted to say, I am a nerd, by the way. Uh, I also have a background in computer science and material science. And I'm probably proud of being a nerd because I kind of apply the Vulcan mindset wherever I go. So just wanted to add that in. So yeah, so I had a data for uh, what is the audience platform at the BBC. And I'm probably going to represent the wider platform data opportunities today. So one thing I want to say, so as BBC platforms, what we do is we power the content delivery, the personalization, and the insight around our audience-facing propositions, which means we have a great opportunity to be right in the middle of our relationship with the audience members and the people who are creating all the lovely content we do and cool things like the Data Science Research Partnership. So right in the center of it. And I want to talk first about, give some context of what we do. So 
Take the BBC audience member, they may be signed in, they may not be signed in. We want a lot more people to sign in, that's our, our mission. But what we're basically doing is we are, uh, they're interacting with our content or concepts. Now this could be a plethora of products, I didn't want to name a few products and then be biased, so let's talk about all BBC audience facing products as content and concepts. And there are things we're capturing such as clicks, plays, reads, heartbeats of every audio and video program being played out there. We're then pooling that into the audience data platform where we have a very large petabyte scale data lake where we are doing a lot of interesting things with the data, which I'll come to. We're also bringing in data from uh, what I would call off-platform, so things like research, things like we're doing with social media and so on, and we're now bringing that data in, in-house, and all of this comes in and it's powering um, a few things. But before that, we're then bringing the context to the content of the concept. So things like uh, geodemographic data, location-based data, and our own content metadata, which, which is quite a large piece of work we're doing. And, and then we're doing things like insight and reporting, so David's looking, care of, uh, looking after that. But we're also building audience-facing propositions, such as better engagement, segmenting the audience data, personalizing that experience, uh, recommendations. So all of this is being powered by this cyclical journey where we're then creating new content or concepts. And this is where I see the data science research partnership working, because we want to build those new contents and concepts so that it adds more value to the audience member. So, no good diagram will not have boxes in it, so I thought I'll throw some boxes up there. It's not an architecture diagram, it's just a conceptual view of the lake where we're bringing in audience data, we're bringing content metadata, but I didn't want to forget the fact that we have data governance and privacy, and hence my rather loaded question on GDPR, is that while we're doing all of this, we want to ensure that we do it in a way that maintains the trust the audience members have given us in giving their data, and so I've got two things to say uh, more as a takeaway. Normally you have three things, but there's my two things, if I can remember them. First is, rather than ha being hampered by regulation, I want to understand and partner with you guys to understand what you're trying to do. So if we understand it better, we can define it better to the audience member. And secondly, rather than just give you data in a safe format and here you go, have play with it, I would like to partner so that our software engineers and our data engineers are actually working with you and learning things in data science as well. And that's me. Wonderful. Next we heard from Gabriel Straub, who's in technology strategy and architecture. Uh, we've heard today that the BBC came into being in 1922 as a radio broadcaster. In 1930s, we were playing around with TV in 1997, we began to appear on the internet. Now there are 10 national BBC radio stations, over 40 local ones. We have nine national TV stations and a countless amount of apps and websites. This means that over the past 100 years, we have created a huge amount of content in many different formats. Yes, but how do we ever keep track of such a large project? As our audiences expect more and more seamless experiences, as they expect to be able to access all of our content from any device, as they expect to find programs and articles quickly and easily, we need to create a BBC that wraps more and more around our audience's needs. A truly personal BBC. The BBC is a wonderful organization. It involves several thousands of people, many of them very creative, all working towards common goals. Although they are nominally organized into hierarchical management structures, this does not constrain the way people will communicate and share information, equipment, or software across groups. In providing a system for manipulating this sort of information, 
The hope would be to allow a pool of information to develop which would grow and evolve with the organization and the projects it describes. Given the history of the BBC, the different parts of our organization are acting pretty independently. This means that there is no common agreement on how to store or describe content. There is no common pool of knowledge either. While the World Wide Web created an amazing way of storing and accessing the world's information, it was really the search engines that allowed most of the knowledge to become available to the wide set of users. Initially, these search engines were closer to portals, in the sense that they organized interesting websites into folders um, related to topics. In 1994, the two Stanford students, Jerry Yang and David Fido, created Jerry and David's Guide to the World Wide Web, which you probably know as Yahoo. It is one of the most famous examples of this ways of organizing the web. And in a way, this is where we are currently in the BBC. A lot of our content is tagged up with keywords that allow us to put it into folder. We call those topic pages. Similarly to the big limitations of the original web guides, this approach currently depends a lot of our manual input and on our ability to think upfront about which tags and folders would be useful. As the rise and decline of internet companies tells you, this might not be the optimal approach to do search. And one of the shortcomings really becomes clear when there is a tragic event happening in the world. In this case, our schedulers have to manually look through the content we were planning to broadcast over the coming weeks to see whether there's anything that could stress people, in particular children. Before some of the recent attacks that used vans and cars as weapons, no one would have ever expected that a certain type of vehicle would be required as a tag. Now, in hindsight, we know that it is a useful piece of information, but we do not know what other tags might be relevant in the future. On the internet, this problem was solved by two other Stanford students called Larry Page and Sergey Brin when they developed PageRank and Google. No more tags and folders, but instead free text search with rankings based on relationships between documents. Most modern search engines create dictionaries of relevant documents by checking which words occur in a document. And this works great in a web that is, consists mostly of text, but it does not work so well if you have audio, video, and pictures. Current search engines overcome this by creating tags for these harder to search document types, but again, this creates similar limitations as what we have currently within the BBC. Now, in order for us to realize our ambition of a truly personal BBC, we therefore need to build on the work that is already happening in other organizations to extend the World Wide Web to be able to better deal with non-text type documents. A web that can create the links between different types of documents of different formats without the need of specifying those links in the documents, and a search engine that allows us to search for content without having to do a tra textual translation first. And these are two massive challenges, and I really look forward to working with you in order to try and solve them. Thank you. And we finished with a great talk from Magda Pietkowska, who'd BBC News. As we found out earlier on, especially from Gabriel, uh, BBC has a lot of data. So in our archives, we have millions and millions of content pieces and, and a lot and hundreds of data points um, related to them. Additionally, we also know that we have over a million of um, visitors every day landing on our websites. And we collect uh, every click that they do and a lot of metadata related to that click. So, it's not a surprise that people like me and people like, like you and data scientists have found their way to the newsroom. And we know that, know that, that journalists directly or indirectly are producing a vast, vast amount of data. However, the, the role of us, the role of the data scientists in the newsroom is not so much to play with all that, uh, but to 
create a bridge and uh, cover the gap between what is currently possible and what is realistic and practical today in a fast-paced fast -paced news, digital world of news. So take the audience data. Technically, it is possible to create a different experience for everybody who visits our website. But how do we know that, that what they need, what they want, and how to present it to them? And that takes me to a massive hall somewhere in Switzerland, um, the, the Hadron Collider. Probably many scientists uh, are very, very familiar with that, with that concept. And I'm not suggesting here that we should be digging up a hole under this building and putting our audience in it. But what we should take as a key is that the experimentation and the practicality of the experiment should be at the heart of our digital product. So in fact, we don't really have enough data. We still have to connect a real-time feedback from the audience, because the audience is in the best position to tell us what they really want and what kind of a product they expect from us. However, the challenge is that most of us readers are really, truly loving the cutest puppies or what happens at the end of the Tinder date rather than the kind of a healthy journalistic salad of um, the, the declining or growing US debt after the, the new president has taken over. The real challenge for us is to come up with a new reinvented cost function that will help us design our robots that are driving our websites and driving our products. It's about the metrics. It's about how do we program fairness, diversity, representativeness. Uh, how do we make sure that the backend to our product is truly what our values stand for? So in fact, the tons of data that we have is not, is not enough. We should look towards our audience to tell us what, what they want. Let's take the content data that we talked about before as well. Again, surely it is possible to have about 90% of the news generated robotically. But it will take, take us quite a long time to, to get there, to tune our robot journalists so that they are not racist and they also a little bit more creatively expressive. And while the certain scientists might have time to explore the real truth about black holes, it's a little bit annoying that it's going to take so long, but it's okay. While we in the newsroom don't have that time, because if we don't start act, don't start act fast, um, we not gonna we're not going to make it. We're not going to be here in a few years. So um, what is much more practical at the moment for data scientists in the newsroom is take all those learnings from the audience data and from the content data and work with the journalists so they create enough reporting sweet cakes and, and healthy journalistic salads uh, to build our, our site. Thank you. So, there are some of the areas that the new partnership is already dealing with. Of course, this is a big project, and Sam Chadwick, who heads up partnerships in R&D, told me after the launch that she sees the combination of academic expertise and BBC engineering skills creating major changes in our understanding of our audiences, leading to new tools, products and services. 
but this relies on opening up BBC data to experts inside and outside the BBC, which, as you know, can be challenging. However, the benefits in terms of new ways of telling stories could also be immense. If you want to know more about the partnership, talk to Sam Chadwick or Andrew McParland at R&D. They'll happily tell you about current and planned projects. And of course, check out the BBC R&D website at bbc.co.uk slash rd. Just search for Data Science Research Partnership. That's all from this DNE podcast at 2LO Rebooted. Do subscribe to our feed on iTunes or SoundCloud for more tales from BBC Design and Engineering.